Hi, welcome to Yes and No, where we challenge assumptions about people and work. My name's Steve Hunt. My name's Kim Lear. So I am a psychologist. Kim has a sociology background. And in this show, each episode, we look at a question that the answer really is yes and no, but people tend to have very strong opinions about it. And we're going to kind of argue it from both sides, basing our thoughts both on our own experiences professionally, but also based on a lot of research. And in the show notes, we always provide some of the research upon which our thoughts, ideas, and expressions are based, because we like to tie this stuff back to data when we can, and not just anecdotal stories, although we'll share those too. So the first one we're going to look at, oh, and one caveat, Kim and I, when we decided to do this, said we may say things in the heat of the moment that don't necessarily reflect our true opinions. We're just trying to make a point. Please listen to the end of the show for what we actually think, having thought about this topic a lot. So the first episode, we're going to dive into the topic of do generational differences matter? Kim, yes or no? Well, just by the nature of my work that I focus a lot on generational change, I have a bias, of course, towards, yes, that generational changes and generational differences do matter. And I think it's the same way that the study of history matters and the study of culture matters, because at its core, that is what generational theory is exploring. This isn't a psychological tool. I think that's one of the most important things to recognize, that when we talk about change in generational time, this isn't Myers-Briggs, this isn't DISC, uh, you know, that this shouldn't be used as a way for managers to figure out if you're an introvert or an extrovert or how you would want feedback given. This is a lens to understand change on a broader spectrum. I really like that because, yes, for sure, and going to psychology, that this isn't about traits. It's really about life experiences. And life experiences absolutely shape us through our lives. I mean, if you grew up during a war or a depression, it's going to have lasting implications on sort of how you view the world and things like that. You know, our, our childhoods matter a lot for our long-term development. So in that sense, I absolutely agree with you. Generational, The generation that you grow up in does have an impact on how you're likely to see the world. And I think that, that that the premise of that is what initially captured my imagination when I was very young to this whole study of generational changes, because I remember being so young and so porous and so open and so impressionable. And it was in the backdrop of 9-11, the backdrop of the recession, these big moments. And I just remember so viscerally trying to be, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old and wonder, like, what does this mean? What is our, what, what is our society? Like, how does this all make sense? And so I think that's a reason not only that it captured my imagination, but everyone's. I mean, the reason that this whole topic of generations is so alluring, even if it's just for people to fight about it, is because it exists at the intersection of our shared curiosities. Yeah, and I think also it gets into how we raise defines our concept of what normal is. And one of the things that definitely changes too is social attitudes. Uh, you know, a great example of this is gender equity, that if you grew up 60 years ago, there weren't very many professional working women. And if you grew up now and you went to school, it's over 50% women. Well, normal to somebody who went to school now is most of the people in class are women. Normal to somebody who went to school 60 years ago, that wasn't the case. And so I think social attitudes and this concept of what is normal, and to a negative sense, what the world should be like, because 
honestly, I don't think the world should be like anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's things I'd like it to be more like, but you know, the world is the world is the way I suppose it should be. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to change it. Um, but this idea of, of normal and the sense of what is normal is yeah. very much defined on the experiences you have growing up when you define the world around you for the first time. Well, and it's a question that I get asked so often, which is like, um, you know, when we look at these gener- like a generational framework, there's so many people who go against the grain, right? So many people who are uh, maybe before their time or whatever that is. And of course, like, of course, and there are academics who specifically study the exceptions. And so there are always going to be people who go against the grain. I'm interested in the grain itself. Like, what is the direction that the grain is going in at that time? Because what would be considered against the grain or subversive or taboo or provocative today is very different than what it was even 10 years ago. And I think one of the one of the most fun ways to look at this is to see how humor does not translate generationally. How you can watch like a, you know, something that was very, very funny in 1990 even, and you watch it today and you're like, this is not funny or or this is like very off-putting, whatever that is. And that's just a reflection of how we can see that what we deem appropriate, um, what we deem taboo, how that changes over time. Yeah, absolutely agree. And that's actually one of the things where I personally, when people sort of judge historical figures through the lens of current values, I'm like, you know, it's not like, I'll take Thomas Jefferson, you know, yes, Thomas Jefferson had slaves. And was he probably an abhorrent person by modern day standards? He probably was. He's probably extremely racist by how we define racism. But at the time, what was amazing was he did go against things. You know, he tried, he had a different idea of equality. So part of that, I think, is people forget that it's really unfair to judge a person based on a time that didn't exist when they were alive. And I love that you just brought up Thomas Jefferson, because when I think about if there was a historical person who would really understand the concept of a generational reevaluation, it would probably be Thomas Jefferson. And he had this understanding that what could be considered a historical hero could become a modern villain. And in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to James Madison in 1789, he wrote, it may be proved that no society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. Every constitution then and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it be enforced longer, it is an act of force and not of right. That's that's so fascinating. I think it's, of course, we've totally ignored that. <laughs> well, and, and it did go like that whole concept got lost to history, of course. And so when I found this excerpt, I was like, my God, how... Um, how interesting that the very person whose legacy is so in question today was, in fact, the person who agreed that his legacy should, should in be fact, in be in question. And I will save it for the no part because I don't completely agree with Thomas Jefferson on that. But I think it's a really good point that this understanding of this idea of saying you're ahead of your time, you've got to define then what is the time now. Right. Which is this idea of sort of having attitudes and beliefs change in generation. Another place where I really see it play out is technology. You know, where technology, the technology that was around kind of, again, when you grew up does have an influence on your attitude and acceptance of technology. Um, In this sense, if you remember talking to this with my brother once when texting was first coming out, right? And 
his kids were texting like mad. You know, those people, you can't have a real conversation with text and all this other stuff. And my brother made a really good comment. He goes, who knows? If you're familiar with it, he goes, people used to have amazing romances with letters that they'd send that they'd get every three months, you know. <laughs> um, when the telephone came out, people thought it was the end of conversation. I remember when email came out and people would print out emails for their bosses. I mean, it's like people's sense of technology defines kind of what's normal and what's expected in a way, you know, I think about technology in that sense, it's a form of communication. It's like a language you grow up. The problem also happens is people get stuck in technology, right? They get stuck in one form. Remote work is a perfect example of that. There's nothing natural about commuting to an office, but an office building is a form of communication technology that was built in the 18th century and just got so used to it that people forgot it even was a generational, if you will, concept. Right. And, and that's where I think this understanding of generational difference is really good because it's a way to challenge assumptions that aren't based on tr truths, if you will. They're just based on what's normal to people at the time. Yeah. Well, to bring to bring it back to even this core question of like, does any of this matter? Like, the, of like, do generational differences matter? Mm -hmm. Because I think that um, in in some ways we're in agreement that they exist. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, maybe not to the uh, extremes that people believe that they do but that you know there is this change over time you are not an exact replication of your father your son mm. is not an exact replication of you like we understand that that things change and then it's a question of like does that matter right is it worth exploring particularly in a workplace setting and it, in my opinion and then we can kind of talk mm. about the research and stuff is that generational diversity or generational uh, differences, they matter for the same reason that all forms of diversity matter, because it allows us to ask ourselves these really empathetic questions about change on, on both parts. On, you know, asking questions like, would I see this differently if I was born in a different time? Right. And, and companies have these huge DEI initiatives to encourage people to ask themselves questions like, would I, would I see this differently if I was a different color, a different gender, a different race, you know, a different religion, all of these components? Because it's not possible to move with culture and society without that exploration, and that's why I think it, it matters. Yeah, I think it. I think it matters in the sense of people have an understanding that the perspectives of other people are different, and what's really important is understanding the value perspectives and having some sense of how those perspectives are different. You know that if you grew up, like again, I'll use the technology example. If you grew up with a mobile phone since day one, going into a company that doesn't have a mobile phone, you know, doesn't enable mobile technology for an employee, would be like going into a company that doesn't have indoor plumbing, right? You're like, this is stupid. Why don't you have what I've always had and I shouldn't have to go backwards in time when I come into your company from a technology perspective? And that's also true with social attitudes. I think you know, the pressures for things like gender equity and those changes are driven again by, by, quote, what is normal for the next generation is not necessarily what was normal for you. And mm -hmm. I think similarly, the urgency that you see in the younger generations is if you're older, you kind of say, well, it's better than it was when I was a kid. But if you're a kid, it's like, no, it's not the way it should be. There is no it's better than it was because there is no was. There's just now. And I think that that drives a a, a good sense of change in organization. Um 
I do think, which gets into the next step, the, the no side, though, yeah, that I think yeah. it can absolutely be taken too far in a very, very dangerous way when we start talking about those kids, those adults, they think differently because as soon as it switches from trying to understand other people's lived experiences to labeling people as Gen Xers and Boomers and the Karens and all that stuff, which is incredibly offensive, but pervasive, then it becomes really bad. So with that... Any more arguments on the yes side before we dive into no, we shouldn't be talking so much about generations? Let's go to no. Let's go to no. Okay, well. I'll let you lead this because I know this is your favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I think I want to start because you said something right at the beginning when you said that this is about sociology and culture and it's not about psychology and traits. And I think that is absolutely such a key, key point when we talk about generations. I will say there is some research that shows that psychological traits seem to change some slight amount from generation to generation. Usually, like, for example, cognitive ability scores have kind of steadily gone up, which is probably attributed to education getting better. You know, um, there's changes in personalities and stuff, but they're very slight. And there's far more variation within generations than there is across generations. Trying to make an assumption that, well, because you're from this generation, therefore you're going to be more narcissistic or more extroverted, whatever, would be like looking at, you know, a man versus a woman and saying, well, because you're a woman, you're going to be you know, not as fast at running as a man would, which is ridiculous because, yeah, on average, maybe do the men on average run faster than women, but there's so much variation. I can guarantee you, I don't run faster than most women. (laughs) (laughs) So that, that we really need to be incredibly careful that we're not, you know, sort of assuming that somehow people are born totally different because we don't evolve as fast as new books about generations come out. We evolve very slowly And the other thing, and then I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, is, you know, you don't need to be a psychologist to know that grouping people together based on demographic categories, putting labels on them and making sweeping generalizations about those groups is bad. It's called stereotyping. And this discussion of generation is just a formula for ageism. And that's what probably concerns me the most because I see it just that whole boomers are this and that it's, it's terrible. And so that's probably my biggest, well, that is my biggest, simple, biggest concern is that we are just fomenting ageism at scale with all this talk about generational differences. It's funny because, and this is almost like a generational component, is that the biggest um, kind of pushback that I typically get from more senior people on this topic at all is this will be ageist against older people, that that it'll like give this assumption that, you know, because we do live in such a youth-obsessed culture. And so there's this constant concern that like the more that you put this topic and this conversation out there, the more that we like infiltrate our workplaces with this idea that, you know, once you're past a certain age, you're no longer innovative, you're no, no, no longer creative. And that's just, I mean, and we'll put in the show notes, that is not true. That That is obviously not true. And when I talk to younger people about it, their big pushback is, and these older people, they think that we, I have no work ethic and that I'm an entitled little brat. Like it's like every, you know, they're worried about themselves and, and, and their perceptions in it. And so I totally agree with you that there is this misuse. And I think part of it is because when 
people try to write about it or explore it through this highly anecdotal lens that when misused, instead of being a, a tool to ignite curiosities and instead of being a tool to explore the context of how we got to where we are, it does become this psychological tool of like, I'm an extrovert and a millennial and that means these things. I'm like, that isn't what it means. <laughs> no, and because when people make implicit assumptions, and we have to realize that people are naturally prone to make bias and assumptions. It's it's a it's a shortcut for our brains to label people. Oh, you're young, therefore you can act that way, or you're older, and so you constantly have to fight against this. And I think probably the the biggest issue that I have overall is we should not use generational labels. Instead of Gen X, people born in the 80s, we, we don't need these labels. We have very clearly defined metrics where we could say people in their 20s, people between the age of 30 or 40, people who grew up at this time. Because as soon as you apply the label to them, then it carries all of this emotional marketing baggage. The other thing I think the problem with the labels is, is it divides us. That is to say, all of us assuming, you know, we're past the age of 20, we're teenagers at one point. And there's a lot of similarities. And this is the next thing I'll talk about. A lot of the stuff people attribute to generational differences is just simply, yeah, as we go through different life stages and career stages, we have different interests. And there's a lot of similarities to teenagers. If, you know, teenagers now and teenagers and I was a teenager, we all dealt with similar issues that were just human issues. And if we talked about it that way, to say, what is it like to be a teenager now? What is it like to be a 20-year-old so that people can identify to, I was a 20-year-old 20, 20 at one point, and how does that compare to my experiences at that point of time in my life, which I think is really, really important. Because what that does is it brings us together to say we've shared, we've shared similar stages of life, but what we experienced in that stage was different. And that, I think, would make this stuff a lot more productive and a lot less prone to the isms that is just inherent in most generational stuff I read on the web. I totally agree with you that that's like the environment on the web. Uh, I am going a little bit against our um, framework mm -hmm. of like – no, and mm -hmm. we'll just stick with the no. And so, listeners, this is our first episode, and so we're we're working things out here because this there is, is yes, just no, a point. Yes. This, yeah, this is sort of a <laughs> yes, no, yes situation. Um, because I do think that it's worth noting that I actually think that one of the biggest barriers to people actually coming together and understanding each other is that we have this mindset of like I was twenty once, and like you're twenty, you know, and so we've both kind of been there, and. I don't think that that is true. Of course, there are psychological realities to, um, you know, hormonal changes mm. of teenage years and that type of thing. There, of course, there are those things. But we look at like parenting, right? Mm. Oh, like uh, you're a mom of young children. I was once a, mm. you know, I, I was once a thirty-something-year-old mm. mom of young children. So it's, it's kind of the same, and it creates this thing of like, why are you doing that? Right. I, I, I've been in your place. I didn't do it like that. And then there's this and, and I see this a lot with how people talk about their children, how they talk about, um, you know, youth culture, teenagers are like, oh, well, when I was a teen, I never did that. You weren't a teen today. Control for the age, right, when I was 20. But when you were 20, this didn't exist. 
that's the key point totally. to make people because that's where people have the aha. So, you know, I'll give example to to my, to my parents. My my parents when they were a young group, you know, my mom was a teenager in World War Two, and um, and she would talk about things she experienced as a teenager, and it would give you a sense of why she was very thrifty. That you understood what she went without at that period of her life. And I think that's the thing where if we said, don't talk about generational differences, talk about differences in life experiences at different stages of life. That And granted, this is a little more complicated, but this is me being a scientist. Generational labels are a shortcut. They are a simplification. And of course, they get picked up by marketing and they are used in all sorts of bad ways. And the thing that just all the work I've done on diversity, equity, and inclusion is, you know, two things. One, if you create an opportunity for people to stereotype, they will. Even implicitly, they can't even control it. So you're fighting this inherent desire to stereotype. And once that happens, the only way you can overcome it is to make them realize the stereotyping. And the way you do that is by focusing on specifics, focusing on conscious things. And so... Do I think this will happen? No. I mean, I wish that they called energy drinks caffeinated sugar water too, but <laughs> but they're not going to. <laughs> well, and I, yeah, I mean that that's so true and I I do hope that when the subject is broached the right way that it becomes more clear that, you know, we're not talking about like every single person born between this state and this state. We're kind of talking about an ethos of an era, a zeitgeist of the time and how that kind of shaped shaped our society in that moment and some of the ripple effects from there but i I do think that there's also kind of a generational component to the um comfort or discomfort with generational labels i think for baby boomers right now especially in the aftermath of that very bizarre terrible counterproductive okay boomer Mm -hmm. moment that there's a huge aversion from baby boomers, rightfully so, where like we look at millennials and we have Eliza Schlesinger with her elder millennial stand-up show and all that. Um, Even we look at Gen Z and like some, there's almost this kind of fun, pop culture-y, nostalgic connection Mm -hmm. to the labels that actually um, makes them like it. So it, it kind of, the relationship to the label, I think is dependent on different things. Yeah, the label exists. I, I'm not going to like it, no matter what, because I do think it's it's yeah. like any labeling. It's just bad. Um, and there's lots of psychological research that backs that up. I think more, though, the other thing I think on the no is going back again to the life stages, that life stages matter a lot more than the year you were born. What, you know, I think what you're trying to do with the year you're at has a bigger influence. And there was, you know, research, for example, like, one of the big things you hear in work is, you know, Gen Y wants more feedback and development or whatever. And it's like, yeah, because they're earlier career stage, when you're early in your career stage. And somebody, and this is where it becomes an issue. Somebody who maybe stayed at home, raised their kids, went to college in their 40s and entered the workforce in their 40s probably is more similar to somebody in their 20s who's just starting out work in terms of what they're looking for from a job than their, maybe their spouse who's 40 and been working for 20 years. So what you're doing is you're losing sight of the similarities of people based on their career stages, their life stages. When you have children, it affects your attitude towards work. And you can have children anywhere, you know, well, you know, 
arguably, I suppose, from age like 13 until like age, you know, 50 people are having children. Yeah. And so looking at things from a life stage and a career stage moment is far healthier. Yeah. And um, in I terms t- of companies creating programs and thinking like that, I, I would say yeah. I don't think a company should ever create a program focused on a generation. I would never my, have somebody say, yeah. I'm sorry, you can't participate. You were oh born gosh, after no. 1985. Oh, my God. No, no, no. <laughs> never anything like that. But I think that there are just other kind of questions beneath the scenario that you propose that are almost like more interesting, which is like if every generation of new hires – people early in career wanted a lot of feedback. Why was it so loud with millennials? Why was it so all-consuming? Why were so many of them willing to leave their jobs for lack of career trajectory, um, for what they felt like was an inappropriate cadence of promotion, all those things? And so it's you're right, where sometimes the wants are the same, which is such a, mm-hmm. such a great point of like where we are so similar, where we are human people who mm-hmm. want to do we want to be good at our jobs. We want feedback. We want positive reinforcement. We all wanted that. But some people got it and some people didn't. And I think that's where you get into the life experience and the labor market. Labor market has a huge impact. When I mean, you have five job offers, you can be more demanding than when you only have one. And so, you know, that's one of the one of the things I think that has a big influence. But I think it is important to look at that. And I think going back to the point again where – this is and this is a no, but really reinforce what you said earlier on, which is people don't change the life situations they grow up and change, but the fundamental psychology of people doesn't really change. And I'll use the example of sexism. As I talked about earlier with my <laughs> probably in the show referred to my parents a lot because I had a big influence <laughs> on my own life experience. Yeah. But my mom started her own company in like nineteen seventy two. And she had a master's degree and she was the exception back then, you know, you know. And she faced and she never complained about it. But she just kind of went through. She faced unbelievable sexism. I mean, like at the time, women weren't allowed to have a credit card without their husband's permission, which actually led to a really funny story because my dad, when he was told he had to go in to sign a credit card for it, I was very young. But I learned years later, he shared the story. He said, um, one, he was very angry because he's like, who are you to tell my wife that she can or can't have a credit card? But he also said to the banker, he goes, you clearly don't understand the power relationship of this marriage. <laughs> Oh my God, what a wonderful man. Yeah, so. I love him. <laughs> but um, but the point is, was it that my mom wanted to experience it and she didn't care? Did she think it was okay? No. What changed between then and now? There are more women in the workforce. Women have more economic power in the workforce. Yep. And they are. it wasn't that women wanted to experience sexism 50 years ago. It's that the condition was such that they were not empowered enough to do anything about it. Now... Thankfully, they are. We still have a long way to go. I want to be clear. But, yep. you know, that's the change. They, people didn't change. Yeah. What changed is society. And to me, that story is an exact exemplification of why the study of generations is so real. Because if your mother was born in a different time, into a different generation, mm-hmm. with different norms, her life would have been different. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's kind of where I find the interest in it. But back to kind of the the no piece here that Mm. we can wrap Mm. up is that I think where we always agree is that there can be so much misunderstanding and misuse of this topic. And when we try to extrapolate, extrapolate psychological insights into this, it's really detrimental and counterproductive. And I think a lot of times can do more harm than good. 
Um, but I think that when we view it as a conduit to understand change over time, to explore fundamental questions of where have we been, how did we get to where we are today, to explore where we might go from here, that's where I think we come together in a lot of ways, where it isn't about us versus them. It's about this real exploration of trying to understand how the mood changes and why it changes and how it evolves. And it helps companies, I think, plan more strategically for the future. I think it helps brands better anticipate the needs of the consumers, things like that. So that that would be my landing point on, on the severe limitations and the opportunities of the topic. Yeah, and I really I really agree with that. I think it's like if it was pre- presented as sort of a sociological history, which is, you know, and what were the prevailing shared attitudes at a certain point in time and why, um, I think is really useful for people to understand. Um, I think also what, what, again, going back to is not good to sort of people over-identifying with uh, generations. As a matter of fact, some of the researchers in psychology look at this say, People, whether they identify with generation, has a lot more to do with the person than even the year they're born. There are people that think of themselves as a millennial, or they think of themselves as a Gen X or a boomer, and they sort of associate themselves with that. And they say, actually, in generational studies, you shouldn't ask people when they're born. You should ask them what generation do they identify with, because that reflects their sense of the sort of stereotypical values associated with that generation. So it's, you know, I think we moved away from that. Um, I will, you know... Go back again that just the danger, though, of talking about generational differences and anything that sort of implies that because you were in that generation, you are going to be this way is both ageist, going both ways, doesn't matter which, you know, but also it's likely to be wrong because there's so much variation. You know, this thought about like sometimes you think, oh, you know, Gen Y is more committed to social causes than boomers. That's not true. It doesn't bear out. The the way people may show it is differently. But if you look at sort of research on these things, we're far more similar across ages than we are different. And we also are far more dissimilar within ages, you know. And so that's what I think it would be good if we just focused more on that. Now, do I think this will happen? No, because the other problem with it gets with generational research, and this affects, happens to any kind of science. It happened with artificial intelligence. It happened with emotional intelligence. All kinds of psychologies. It gets picked up by marketing firms. Yeah. <laughs> and then they start blowing it out, and there's ads, and the ads are just terrible. And then they – and we, we were chatting too. They also create people's identity that they might even have. You know, Lots of people say, oh, everyone remembers this event from their childhood – Maybe they don't, but they've been told they're supposed to, so they start making up memories and things like that. So I think that um, the the reality is that generational differences matter because societies, as long as there have been societies have talked about generational differences, it's not going to go away. It's, it's as human to complain about kids as it is for kids to complain about adults. Um, I think what we should focus on is seeking to understand these differences in a way that brings people together and doesn't start grouping people into different labels. That's my my hope for this field. Yeah. And also, we got to call people out too. Like, I, I don't know how the right way to do it, but I was actually in a session where I heard somebody presenting in the human resource audience, and this person, and no offense, I'm sure this person didn't know, they knew not what they were doing. They called themselves a millennial translator. Oh, God. Like, what I do is I translate oh, what millennials mean for other generations. And I'm like, could you imagine if I got up and said, oh, I'm a female translator? Yeah. I tell other men what women mean. I mean, it's it's just offensive to everyone. Yeah. Yet for some reason, 
people didn't call it out. And so I guess my last caveat would be whenever you hear anyone say something about generation X or Z or Y is blank, replace the word generation and put in the word like Hispanic or Asian and listen to what it sounds like. Yeah. And if it sounds bad, call the person out. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a polite way. Yeah. I think we need to really push back against this because... Um, again, as I say, people are naturally ageist too, and that hasn't changed. That will always be true, regardless of what generation you were born in. I was in an audience, and someone said that they were a millennial translator. I, I don't even know what I would do. I feel like I would either physically walk out or physically stand up and be like, that is not a thing, <laughs> sir. Um, but, you know, the same way, though, that in, like, you know, you use the example of replace those words with Hispanic or African-American or, you know, mm-hmm. d- different different forms of diversity. And I think it other DEI areas, we do look at the experience of a Hispanic-American, mm-hmm. you know, the experiences of African-American um, uh, coworkers and mm-hmm. colleagues and things like that. And it can, in fact, be very beneficial to just kind of give you that lens of like, oh, my God. I, I mean, I remember in the aftermath of George Floyd being killed and how mm-hmm. many white executives were like, God, I've worked with some of these people side by side for all these years. And I didn't know, you know, so so I think that there's that component to it. Um, and so I, again, I mean, I, I do think that that's just like story of change over time. And I think one reason why you keep saying in a way that I think is totally accurate that like it isn't going to change mm-hmm. is because we have these insatiable questions. Mm-hmm. Why is my kid's childhood so different from mine? Mm-hmm. Like, why do I have a hard, why do I look around at the world around me? And I feel like it's so different from the world that I knew. And we have to give people a meaningful way for them to explore those questions. Yeah, and I think that's that's the the challenge of this. I, you know, I think too. I'm just your George Floyd example. What the strength there was again, we got past the label zone. People started talking about lived experiences. I had a lot of those conversations about what it means to grow up black, for example. What it means, to, and that's why I think the generational stuff is very good. It's like what it means to be a teenager at the time you were, whatever. What it, what it, experiences you had that other people didn't have. The last point I guess I'd make on this is it won't go away. And I, I agree. The as you said, the the focus on age and youth culture definitely changes. But as long as there have been people, people have been old people have been complaining about young people and young yes. people complaining about that. Yes. Th- that never <laughs> goes away. And I think one of the things that just to share as a closing thought that I think would be really fascinating research, and I don't know if there is, is realizing that a lot of this focus on generations is part of we define ourselves by how we compare ourselves to others, particularly our parents. Yeah. And a lot of the identification process of us as youth is rebelling to some degree against our parents. It's not rebelling. It's just how you find yourself. You say, I'm not you. I'm me. Well, how do you define it? Sometimes it's through rebellion. So I think a lot of what drives generational differences is the values of the previous generation, that it's a reaction. And the pendulum. Yeah, a pendulum. Yeah. And, and hopefully what we hope though is that maybe we can understand this pendulum better so that we do move towards a better world as opposed to sort of just swinging back and forth. And so with that, I find that really fascinating. But wow, well, I guess in some... As a perfect place to end. Yeah. I think that was great. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to this one is clearly yes and no. So this is the first episode. I hope that the, the audience enjoyed it. And uh, we're going to dive into another question that's probably equally confusing and hard to answer in the next episode. Well, thanks, Kim. Thank you.